working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be Welcome back, unfuckers, subfuckers, facefuckers, instafuckers, and twitterfuckers. Thank you for joining us for part two of Corporate Irresponsibility, where we're in the process of uncovering financial fuckery, corporate misdeeds, and tax evasion schemes brought to bear on an unsuspecting public under the auspices of the greater good and the natural order of the capitalist system. So first, we need to acknowledge something that happened between releases. The granddaddy of corporate so-called liberal media did a thing. Ah, here we go. Humble brag alert. What? What am I going to do? Ignore the fact that the New York Times highlighted unfucking the Republic in the arts section along with seven other left-leaning podcasts in the country? I don't know. I was kind of hoping you would. Fine. Then I won't talk about how we were featured alongside long-running and massive shows in an article titled Post-Trump America Sounds Like This and how it brought us thousands of new listeners who have joined the unfucking movement. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be Perfect in every way. Seriously, if you're new to the show and joining us from the Times article, we're very grateful that you're here. Unfuckers in the Vanguard have a bit of a head start on you in terms of the themes and concepts that we explore in this pod, so hopefully you'll indulge some of our prior shows as well. One of the things that you should know as a newbie is that unfuckers are pretty vocal, highly intelligent, and enthusiastic about unfucking this here republic. So we hope you'll join us in the conversation by subscribing for free to our Substack at unftr.substack.com and email us suggestions at unftrpod at gmail.com. As a quick example of the level of erudition we're talking about, here's a snippet from one of several recent emails we received with suggestions. This one from a college student named Matt after the last show. I'm a college senior writing a thesis about how the developed world's aggressive need for cobalt for batteries and smartphones, laptops, electric vehicles, and grid storage have pushed neoliberal multinational privatization in the DRC, creating one of the ongoing worst and least talked about human rights issues in the last two decades. Whoa. Let's just say that Matt is applying himself a little bit more than I did in college. This is just a snippet of the email where Matt goes on to talk more about corporate responsibility in the context of broader social movements. And I can tell you that his example has already hit the drawing board for a future episode. So that's how this all works. Our goal is to create a community of super smart, highly engaged citizens that enjoy their research with the side of New York style cynicism and the occasional F-bomb. With that, let's get to part two of this topic. We're going to briefly recap some of the highlights from part one to refresh our baseline and stack on some additional building blocks that corporate America has layered over the last few decades. As a special treat, we're going to hear directly from our nemesis to see how economists were putting up the scaffolding around the corporate wall of fuckery and showcase some egregious examples of misdeeds that have hurt us all. Then we'll finish with some fundamental flaws in this movement and detail some critical changes that must be made in our system of regulations and taxation to take back some of the power corporations have gained over the past 50 years. Sound good? Let's do the damn thing. This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world needs. Another basic white guy who started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. On the fucking the Republic. Previously on Unfucking the Republic. In part one, we began by talking about the concept of natural order. 
an enlightenment theory of how economic and political systems could work and how the Chicago School of Economics tweaked and bastardized these theories in the 60s and 70s to concoct a perverted view of socioeconomic policy that essentially said corporations should be free to do whatever the fuck they pleased. We went on to explain how they teamed up with politicians to make socialism and communist Russia the scapegoat for all things terrible in the world while they busied themselves with undoing the regulatory and tax framework in the United States that allowed for social mobility, innovation, and expansion to occur for more than just the top 1%. We explained how corporations worked, blew up Milton Friedman's myth that corporations are magical creatures that exist only to maximize shareholder value, and covered how wealth is transferred from generation to generation. How corporations pulled off a remarkable con job to sell the American people that it's actually somehow okay to hide money in offshore accounts, and did the math to show that they're actually holding somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 trillion offshore to avoid paying the piper back home. In the middle of all this nonsense, we played our exclusive audio, obtained from a secret Senate Republican meeting in a bunker deep below Congress. Satire. Don't sue. Well, we're excited to announce that our undercover agent remained incognito and made her way into a secret Senate Democrat meeting. Ugh, more satire. More not suing us. Anywho. Part 1 concluded with the assertion that we should be paying less attention to individual tax rates and more to corporations, which is the nightmare scenario and conversation the moneyed class really doesn't want us to be having. There, you're all caught up. Okay, kids. It's time. It's time to hear from the man himself. I'll explain the context on the other side of this clip. Since the attack on the Corvair, government has been spending more and more money in the name of protecting the consumer. This is hardly what the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, whose monument this is, had in mind when he defined a wise and frugal government as one which restrains men from injuring each other and leaves them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement. Ever since the Corvair affair, the U.S. government has increasingly been muscling in between buyer and seller in the marketplaces of America. By Thomas Jefferson's standards, what we have today is not a wise and frugal government, but a spendthrift and snooping government. That's him, unfuckers. Uncle Milton himself. Just an aw shucks, free market-loving Jeffersonian trying to protect the regular American from things like seatbelts and airbags. This is a pivotal moment in U.S. history and in our story today. What he's responding to here is Ralph Nader's activism on behalf of the consumer. And for those who aren't really familiar with Nader, it's difficult to explain the impact he had on American society in the 1970s. Nader is the standard bearer of consumer advocacy and his brand of advocacy goes way beyond products and safety. The nadir of Nader, see what I did there, was a controversy surrounding GM's Corvair model, which was the subject of Nader's first chapter in his landmark book, Unsafe at Any Speed. In it, he argued that the rear axle suspension made the Corvair unsafe the faster one traveled. I've linked an article from Road & Track that upholds this theory, though at the time, Nader was demonized by a GM smear campaign that included trying to trap him with sex workers and illegally tapping his phone. Nader would become the poster boy for consumer protection and the most hated man in corporate America for decades as a result of this book and subsequent activism, which even included a run for President of the United States. His efforts didn't go unnoticed in Chi-Town, where Milton Friedman and his merry band of shit-sniffers held Nader up as the pinnacle of government intervention and anti-capitalism. Remember when we covered the Powell memo? 
Powell as well was reacting to the rise of consumer advocates like Nader and encouraged corporate America to get into political lobbying to start fighting fire with fire. Discover how in 1979 Biff successfully lobbied to legalize gambling and turned Hill Valley's dilapidated courthouse into a beautiful casino hotel. So notice what Friedman does in this clip in a really folksy way. First off, just prior to him speaking, there's footage of a driver crushing a racetrack in a Corvair, as if to prove the point that, hey, if a professional race car driver in a helmet on an empty track can drive this thing safely, what's your fucking problem? Milton then invokes the great Thomas Jefferson, saying he would be disappointed in all this hoo-ha over protecting people. We should just be able to do whatever the fuck we want. At some point, we'll talk about the libertarian strain of the Chicago School philosophy and how they amplified certain aspects of Jefferson's themes. Side note, I heard you loud and clear on the need for a libertarian episode, Scott C. So, forget the fact that Jefferson was a slave owner, didn't even think that we needed a national fucking bank, and went back on his own words so many times as president, it's hard to even keep track. What Friedman and others have mastered is the art of cherry-picking the founding fucker mindset and inserting it into modern-day situations as if any of these slave-owning, syphilis-carrying, wife-cheating, but really smart cock-knockers would have an opinion on fucking airbags and cars. But Nader was just another advocate in a long line of citizens who called out corporate injustice. Unfortunately, he's really one of the last great examples because of corporate America's coordinated attack against regulations. Up to this point, some of the most notable reforms in our nation's history came from journalists and citizens like Nader, who put a human face on the everyday tragedies of the capitalist system. From Jacob Reese's photos of tenements leading to housing reform, Upton Sinclair's descriptions of slaughterhouses leading to food safety reform, and, as we promoted recently, Steinbeck's portrayal of the forgotten farmers of the Dust Bowl in The Grapes of Wrath that sparked congressional discussions on wage reform. But by the 1970s, corporate America had just about had it with all of these pesky do-gooders poking around in their business, and indeed, they fought back. A working class hero is something to be. Here's where we can draw on some prior themes on fuckers. Think back to our American propaganda episode where we spoke about the rise of corporate-backed think tanks in the United States and how the media began consuming their literature as fact-based evidence because it was supposedly independent. That's a terrific story. And we have newspaper people on a payroll, don't we, Tom? They might like a story like that. Over the next couple of decades, the number of mostly conservative think tanks doubled and then doubled again all backed by big corporate dollars, and they were pumping out piece after piece about the wonders of free market ideology and the evils of regulation. At the same time, they were pouring an enormous amount of resources into doubling down on the need for tax cuts in order to preserve capital for global competitiveness and innovation, which we discussed in part one. Many of the economic assumptions in these materials were being pumped out by none other than the Chicago School. The underlying theory was that market efficiency was far more effective in protecting the consumer than government regulation could ever be. In theory, that makes a lot of sense, right? In theory, a company that hurts, maims, kills, and sickens its customers wouldn't be in business for very long, right? Mm. The intersection of tax cuts, deregulation, and free market propaganda is important. The tax cuts had the effect of turning big corporations into absolute juggernauts that could afford to paper over their misdeeds with fines, advertising, and PR. First of all, we're still dealing with the fallout of the environmental calamities created by large industries. Remember that things were so bad that even the Nixon administration, which was considered pretty conservative at the time, helped pass legislation to reform the environmental practices of industry in the United States. 
Remember when conserve was actually part of the word conservative? Dig this clip. Each of us all across this great land has a stake in maintaining and improving environmental quality, clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife and natural beauty, parks for all to enjoy. These are part of the birthright of every American. So for a while, it looked like we were actually making some progress. Investigative journalism was arguably at its peak in the late 60s and 70s. Environmental reforms were being passed in a bipartisan manner because we were listening to scientists. What a fucking concept! And the planet and the worker were taking center stage against the backdrop of the civil rights and gender equity movements. So we had progress like, hey, you can't dump tungsten into the waterways. Lead pipes are really bad for drinking water. Hydrochlorofluorocarbons are actually contributing to global warming. Solar power looks like a good idea, so we should incentivize it, etc. Then, as you recall in the Reagan episode, the double whammy of the oil shock and inflation spike caused the first real disruption to our pocketbooks and really fucked the economy in the late 70s. In a matter of just a few short years, there was a team locked and loaded with a shiny playbook that promised to right the ship and restore pride in America. Needless to say, the other team, the good guys, they really weren't prepared at all. Perhaps the most surprising aspect of this entire period is just how organized the opposition was and how prepared they were to undo all of the social, environmental, and consumer protection movements that had recently taken root. The swiftness and totality of it all is blinding. They hit it all, and the United States went on a deregulatory frenzy the likes of which we had never seen before. Between 1980 and 2000, environmental regulations were shattered. The mass incarceration movement went into overdrive. Worker protections and unions were crushed, corporate taxes were slashed, and the coup de grace at the close of the century was the repeal of Glass-Steagall, which let loose a torrent of financial fuckery that haunts us to this day. I don't mean to be patronizing here by condensing a well-worn story most unfuckers are aware of, but I felt it was worth recapping because deregulation and tax cuts really did go hand in hand to blow up the capitalist Chicago school natural order neoliberal philosophy, which is that markets self-regulate better than government. They don't. At a certain size, you don't have to worry about breaking the rules as long as you can afford to pay the penalty. So let's take a breath and take a break and catch up with our undercover investigative team. On the flip side, we'll demonstrate just how easy it's been for corporations to break the rules at our expense and pay the price with stolen funds. Our embedded undercover agent remained in the halls of Congress after surreptitiously recording a secret Republican Senate meeting last week. Undetected, she moved through an underground tunnel to gain access to Senate Democrats. The audio you're about to hear is from a covert meeting to discuss President Biden's infrastructure plan. Unfuckers, you know the deal with these. I can't control them. This extremely sensitive audio is exclusive to unfucking the Republic. Yeah, because no one else would ever run this. All right, here we go. Would someone mind telling me where Chuck is? We were supposed to begin an hour ago. But then they switched from the swing line to the Boston stapler, but I kept my swing line stapler because it didn't bind up as much and, and I kept the staples for the swing line stapler. Senator Kane, you can keep your damn stapler. Where is Chuck? No more questions at this time. I'll cover it at my next press conference. 
Sorry, I'm late. What did I miss? We were talking about my resolution to rename the George Washington Bridge to the Rosario Dawson Bridge. Oh, no, we weren't, Senator Booker. I think it's a fabulous idea. Senator Graham, get out of here. Touchy, touchy. We need to discuss President Biden's infrastructure plan. President Joe, what are you doing here? Just got off the 905 with my fellow strap hangers. Was telling them that old yarn about Corn Pop, the gangbanger. Come on, man. Mr. President, you shouldn't be here. Kamala's here? There you are. He's a wily one, that you Biden. Come on, Joe. Soup's on. Great. Is Strom coming to lunch? You bet. And Ted Kennedy, too. Hot damn. Come on, man. Can we please... Chuck, where are you going? It's my seven-past-the-hour press conference. Have Senator Feinstein cover for me. Good to have you back, you horror-hungry humans. Uh, <laughs> get a load of that lady. Dude, is she even alive? <laughs> Nestrophilia. <laughs> uh, gross. Mr. Gates, get out of here. This is a Democrats-only meeting. Uh, then what are you doing here, Grandpa? You're not even a Democrat. Believe me, and let me be absolutely clear about this. Sometimes I have no idea. Is there anyone here that can talk about this goddamn infrastructure bill? Black and white and brown and Asian and short and tall and gay and straight. Hey, he got to name a bridge after his daddy. Why can't I name one after Rosario Dawson, the actor and national treasure whom I happen to be engaged to if y'all didn't know? That's infrastructure. Ugh. First off, Governor Cuomo doesn't belong here. Second, Senator Booker. Renaming a bridge isn't the same as fixing one. Third... Somebody closed Diane's crypt. It's starting to smell in here. This bullshit is adjourned. There's an amazing site called goodjobsfirst.org that is truly doing the Lord's work by tracking corporate violations. The user experience is a little challenging, but it's a treasure trove of data that will make you either angry or a little excited if you're a fellow masochist. I'm just going to give you a couple of highlights to drive home the point that most corporations don't give a fuck about breaking rules that endanger public health because our tax structure has made them so fucking wealthy, it's easier to pay the fines than follow the rules. Since 2000, the Environmental Protection Agency, which has seen its budget and resources continually slashed, especially during the Trump years, levied $61,489,000,000 in fines for more than 17,000 corporate violations. $61 billion, 17,000 violations. The EPA is here to protect us. Our water, our air, land, natural resources of all kinds. And even with a dwindling budget and staff, they managed to write 17,000 violations. At the top of the list is none other than Coke Industries, parent company owned by Chucklehead Brothers, Charles and David Coke. One of them is dead, doesn't matter which, who are arguably the biggest fucking turds corporate America has ever uh, squeezed out. Do not go in there. Woo! Coke Industries, one of the largest anti-regulation lobbying champions in America, have racked up almost $1 billion in fines spread over more than 400 violations. You see, they just don't care. It's cheaper to pay than to play. We're already fast approaching a time, however, when this kind of shit will look like child's play compared to the likes of Amazon. This, my dear unfuckers, is a whole other class of criminal. 
The difference is companies like Koch Industries are the guy behind the guy. Half of the time, you don't even know who they are, what they own, or what they're polluting. Amazon, on the other hand, owns the consumer supply chain hard stop. We pay them for media, for next day delivery. Their boxes have happy little smiley faces that release endorphins in your brain when you get a brown box on your doorstep. More than a third of the world's websites exist on Amazon web servers. And now they're in the food business. We're addicted to Amazon and they fucking know it. The pandemic was particularly good to the giant online retailer with 2020 revenue closing near 400 billion and profits increasing from 11.5 billion in 2019 to 21 billion in 2020. Now compared to peers like Google and Microsoft, their bottom line numbers are actually low, but they're gaining ground quickly. Walmart is still a larger company, but Amazon blows their profit margin away. Now we know by share price that Amazon is very valuable. But in real top-line and bottom-line dollars, at this trajectory, it's conceivable they could gross a trillion dollars within the decade, and perhaps sooner. And yet, we've given Amazon subsidies in the U.S. in various forms totaling $2.9 billion, and they're one of the biggest tax cheats as well. Over the last three years, Amazon has paid an effective tax rate of 4.3%. Do you remember when the subject of our second unfucking quickie, AOC, was raked over the coals for killing the Amazon warehouse deal in her district? Freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is taking enormous criticism from some in her own party and her own state for her role in Amazon's decision to cancel plans for a huge investment in New York. Let's look at this more closely. Amazon looks to locate their hubs near wealthy areas so that they can service their prime customers that can afford to pay prime fees. But they don't drop a fulfillment center right in the middle of a swanky neighborhood. They go to the closest nearby low-income community with higher Black and Latinx populations. Then they have the gall to ask for tax breaks and subsidies for blessing these areas with new jobs that have higher injuries and pay scale no greater than what currently exists, especially in an area like fucking New York. What her district needed was not another marginal-paying warehouse facility that was subsidized to come there. It needs affordable housing. Furthermore, do you know who you're robbing when you give tax breaks to a company that has the means to basically pay anything in taxes? You rob the local school district and the municipality of the revenue that they sorely need, revenue that they otherwise would have received from buildings that were on the property tax rolls. And so by having fleets of cars in and out of the areas, workers for all shifts and delivery vehicles, you also create congestion and pollution and wear and tear on the area, but no taxes to offset it. So net-net, these deals are extremely corrosive. But AOC was really taken to task for being a job killer. But dig this. Prior to the pandemic, the jobless rate in Queens was less than 3%, just like the rest of the country. So no, her district does not need more fucking warehouse jobs. It needs affordable housing. People outside of her district were killing her over this. But maybe she won the primary with 74% of the Democratic vote and the general with 71% of the vote because she actually understands what the fuck her district needs. What I appreciate about the GOP is that they're not hiding their intentions. Theirs is less ideology and more theology. There is a real hardened belief that corporations are superior to all things political and social and that we need to protect them with the utmost fervor. Democrats, on the other hand, are far more disingenuous when it comes to playing this game. But they have their hands out just as much as the Republicans do. They just talk out of both sides of their mouths. Just look at Schumer's donations if you need confirmation of just how in the fucking tank Democratic leadership is with big business. 
If you're following David Sirota's Substack journey, The Daily Poster, and if you're not, you really need to, then you've likely seen him pick apart corporate Dems like Manchin and even shill progressives like Cinema. One of the craziest things on the table right now is the proposed increase for corporate taxes as part of Biden's infrastructure agenda. But all they're pressing for is to increase corporate taxes to 28%. That's only halfway to where it was when Trump cut it. It's preposterous, and hopefully we did a good enough job in the first part to illustrate why they can afford to pay more and how everyone, everyone actually benefits when they do that. Even the top tier of income earners, not the billionaire class, they're a different animal. The top income earners would be insulated from harm under this scenario because it would incentivize corporations to pay people more across the board. Of course, this can't happen in a silo. In order to make this effective, you would have to simultaneously tighten the noose around corporate America's wallet to prevent them from parking money offshore or using loopholes to evade taxes. The maddening part of this is actually how surprisingly easy it would be if the appetite existed to do so in Congress. Here are a few suggestions from our friends at Good Jobs First to get us started. Subject accountants, lawyers, and bankers to criminal prosecution for aiding and abetting tax evasion. Deny offshore financial centers, commonly referred to as OFCs or shadow banks, the ability to clear dollar-denominated transactions in New York, which would essentially deny them access to the international banking system. Deny aid to all countries that house OFCs. And here's an obvious one. Just pass a law to make tax structures designed to evade taxes illegal and make it mandatory jail time for both the convicted tax cheat and their enablers. That would shut all of this shit down. And it could all be done with legislation, and a lot of this could just be done by executive order. There are dozens of other arcane suggestions that would effectively shut down this practice, as we discussed in part one, and the vast majority of these companies would be unable to move their corporate domicile and could even risk their listing on U.S. exchanges. The comprehensive takeaway, my dear unfuckers, is that corporations have had it their way entirely since 1980. Deregulation has gone their way. Taxes have gone their way. They're hiding 10 trillion fucking dollars, our money, offshore to pump up the value of their shares by compounding cash gains and inflating their balance sheets. Compensation packages have been so absurdly enlarged that the fastest growing segment of the U.S. population are new millionaires, while the middle class shrinks and the poor continue to be left behind. As we heard in our propaganda episode, they're even writing state and federal laws directly. Any illusion of a firewall between corporate America and Washington, D.C. has evaporated because no one really cares. Every day, these companies carry out the heist of a lifetime, and no one, no one bats an eyelash. So why do we let them? Why do we cower to their might and fawn all over the wealthy executive? I'll leave that final word to the great acerbic columnist and satirist of yesteryear, H.L. Mencken. I know he was problematic at times on some stuff, but boy, some of his shit really holds up. Here's Mencken. Perhaps the most valuable of all human possessions, next to an aloof and sniffish air, is the reputation of being well-to-do. Nothing else so neatly eases one's way through life. There is in 90% of all men, and in 99% of all Marxists, who value money far beyond its worth, and are always thinking of it and itching for it, an irresistible impulse to crook the knee to wealth, to defer to the power that it carries with it, to see all sorts of superiorities in the man who has it or is said to have it. True enough, envy goes with the craven neck. 
but it is envy somehow purged of menace. The inferior man, at bottom, is afraid to do evil to the man with money. He's even afraid to think evil of him. That is, in any patent and offensive way. What stays his natural hatred of a superior, I dare say, is the snaking hope that he may get some of the money by being polite, that it will pay him better to caress than to strike. We have related episodes coming up, including one on conscious capitalism and a really deep dive into the Chicago school. Our next one is a departure, but it's an important one. That's all I can say for now. In the meantime, unfuckers, conscious capitalism is an oxymoron. Amazon is Skynet. Hashtag FMF. Here endeth the lesson. Okay, so we have to thank the New York Times for including us in that article. It was completely out of the blue. A couple of people emailed us and asked us if we have a publicist. No, we do not have a publicist. We really don't know how it happened, but I can assume that the Times follows best of the left. As you all should. As we all should. So I guess I just have to say thank you, thank you, thank you again to all of the listeners from Best of the Left who have embraced us. Thank you to Jay and Amanda for bringing us into the fold and allowing us to flourish on this platform. A whole bunch of people bought us coffee. Cooper bought us seven coffees. Here's what Cooper had to say. Brother, not one other podcast in the history of podcasts that I listen to has been celebrated, recommended, written about anonymously on a right-wing echo chamber website because, good lord, do they need a serious unfucking, and quoted to friends to make me look whip-smart and unabashedly abrasive about it than you and FTR. Here's some coffee. I wish I was buying you a fistful of sativa to relax your mind after spending the day shoveling all of that historical shit. Keep up the excellent work. Did I pronounce sativa right? Is that what it is? Is that the kind? The weed? The ganja? The Mary Jane? Is that the good stuff? <laughs> Lara E. Lara, you... Lara, you bought us five coffees again. You are so dedicated. I, I, I don't even know what to say. Thank you for doing that. You really don't have to keep doing it, but you can keep doing it if you want. She said, great episode today as always. I put this comment in an Apple podcast review, but in case you don't see it, I love that my two favorite podcasts intersected today. I'm a big Time Suck fan. We called out Time Suck in our last show as a recommendation from our anonymous producer. And uh, boy, it really does hold up. If you haven't checked out Time Suck, please do so. Lara also said, also, I'm really going to need you to come through with that fuck Milton Friedman t-shirt. Can't wait to wear that shit. Thanks for all you do. Coming soon, Lara. No, no like seriously, it's coming really, really soon. Julie M. bought us three coffees. Mary T. bought us three coffees and said, best podcast. DL bought us three coffees as well and said, best fucking podcast on the planet. And totally hilarious. Well, thank you very much. I hope someday we can be the best podcast in the galaxy. On the Facebooks, John Cain reached out to us again. Going to read his quote, as I often do. Slavery and genocide should not be left out of the conversation on businesses influencing politics. This isn't just an origin story of that influence. Its legacy remains as a practice today. Here, here, John. Everybody check out Let's Talk Native with John Cain. You know I'm a big fan of him and a big fan of the show. John is all truth. No bullshit in this guy. He's the best. On the Twitters, Goathead Triple X jumped platforms. Goathead Triple X joined us from another platform and now is all over the Twitters and said, I rarely tweet, but if you see this, listen and check out Unfucking the Republic podcast. It's like last week, tonight's deep dives, but with a deep baritone American accent. Damn, I keep forgetting, but fuck Milton Friedman. Hashtag fuck Milton Friedman. You just keep saying it. I love it. That's so awesome. And Jay Boogie, as always, great job. Can't wait for part two. Hey, Jay Boogie, I hope you enjoyed part two and we didn't let you down. 
emails, as you heard, we had a couple of really, really insightful emails. We called out the ones from Matt and from Scott, and we will get to those topics. As a reminder on fuckers, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, because it really, really does help us in the rankings. Pod love! Check out David Sirota on the most recent episode of Useful Idiots. It's a quick episode, but he touches on corporate taxation and the fight over the salt cap deduction in a really smart and passionate way. As always, he actually turned me around on a couple of things in there where I was like, hmm, fucking Sirota. Smart as fuck. Also, episode 1414 of Best of the Left has a pretty fantastic rundown of Biden's plan from commentators across the board. Take particular note of Rick Wolf's economic update clip. You know I love Rick Wolf. Book love! Go to bookshop.org slash shop slash pod. First off, we'll stay on a Matt Taibbi theme for a minute since he's the host of Useful Idiots. I want to go back and suggest an oldie but a goodie with Griftopia. It's a great primer on the fuckery behind the financial crisis. Then, definitely move into Jane Mayer's Dark Money, which is still required reading for anyone with a pulse and political curiosity, in my opinion. And more recently, I just finally got through The Price of Peace, the biography on John Maynard Keynes. It is fucking awesome and I'll probably be referencing it a lot. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. With an even deeper and sexier baritone American accent. Mm. Our theme music is composed by Tom McGovern. Go to TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Gomer Pyle and distributed by Push-Ups and Sit-Ups. Send us your comments, your suggestions, your queries, your troubles, the things that keep you up at night to unftrpod at gmail.com. Visit our website at unftrpod.com or follow us on Substack at unftr.substack.com. That's where we can keep up with each other between releases. And remember, we'll never charge for Substack. <laughs>